first, I'm very glad to be here and thank you very much. I hope you will not be too bored. Uh, ideology, is a ideology, ideology is a category which is very problematic today. Most people think that we live in a post-ideological era. What I will try to demonstrate is how more than ever we are deep in ideology. Let me take a simple example, tolerance. Of course, everybody is today for tolerance and against intolerance. And of course, when I criticize tolerance, people then tell me, but are you crazy? Are you for intolerant attacks on homosexuals, on gypsies, and so on? My answer is, nonetheless, that tolerance is one of the crucial ideological categories today. Uh, let's take racism. It is not self-evident that we perceive racism as a problem of tolerance. Do a simple experiment. Go on the internet, download the speeches by uh, Martin Luther King and look for the word tolerance or intolerance. You will not find the word is practically absent. He doesn't use the word. For him, tolerance, sorry, racism is not a problem of tolerance, but a problem of uh, unequal laws, uh, 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 unjust legality, economic exploitation, and so on, not of tolerance. Uh, the problem, so the problem is, why do we perceive today racism as a problem of tolerance or intolerance? I think the reason is that we live in a so-called post-political society, more and more. It is as if economy, social administration are more and more depoliticized. So all conflicts are then translated into conflicts of uh, cultural conflicts, conflicts of different cultures. Uh, you know two big thesis theories even about what is going on today. On the one hand, Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. We can laugh at Fukuyama, but I think that 99% of us are, what would be the advert, Fukuyama is. The majority, even of radical left today, accepts capitalism and parliamentary democracy. They just want more tolerance, more less racism, and so on. They just want to organize things in a more tolerant, more equal. Once, when we were young, at least some of us, we were dreaming about socialism with a human face. This phrase was always interesting for me because it presupposes that what can be human about socialism is only the face, not what is behind. <laughs> I think that what today's left wants is global capitalism with a human face. Then, on the opposite end, we have Huntington, his theory of the class of civilizations. I claim there is no opposition between the two, Fukuyama and Huntington. Clash of civilizations, that is to say, cultural conflicts is what remains of the politics at the end of history. Uh, another indicator of this uh, today's ideology of tolerance is the notion of, I don't know how to say it, harassment in the sense of sexual harassment. 
what does harassment really mean? It, I think it presupposes an extremely narcissistic view of man. Uh, the idea is that whenever the other, as the neighbor, precisely also in religious sense, whenever the other comes too close to you, you feel harassed. Uh, you just have to visit a leftist American university to see what this means. For example, if you look, if you are a man and a woman too long into the eye, I was already accused of uh, visual rape. <laughs> so I claim that in Western countries developed, Western Europe, United States, the ideology of tolerance means its exact opposite. Of course, I say this as a Leninist, you know how Lenin asks freedom, but freedom for whom to do what? I, we, I think we should ask the same question apropos tolerance. Tolerance, but tolerance of what? Tolerance against what? De facto, tolerance means don't come too close to me, stay at the proper distance. So tolerance effectively means I don't tolerate your proximity. So I think that to put it in even theological terms, the problem of tolerance is the problem of the neighbor. You know, like, love your neighbor. And here things get, start to get really interesting. Our spontaneous ideology tells us that we must understand each other. You shouldn't reduce the other just to a figure of enemy. You should understand the other from within. The best formula for this ideology is this one. An enemy is someone whose story we have not yet heard. Now, this sounds very deep and human. The idea is once you hear how the other experiences the situation, you cannot hate him. Uh, I am totally opposed to this model. Uh, why? First, uh, let's make a simple mental experiment. In this phrase, replace enemy with a concrete name. Would you also say Hitler was our enemy because we didn't really hear his story? We, you can replace Hitler with Brezhnev, with whomever you want. I'm quite sure that if somebody were to ask Gustav Husak in 69, would have asked him an anti-Soviet question, he would say, no, Brezhnev is only your enemy because he didn't hear his story. <laughs> there is a very difficult lesson to be learned from this. It is that the story we are telling ourselves about ourselves in the innermost of our being, oh, yeah. the way you make sense of your life, is as a rule a lie. The truth is not in there, in the heart of your personality. I am sure that if you were to look from real proximity at Stalin, Hitler and so on, you would discover that in their family they were very kind and so on. And you should go to the end here. I wonder if it's translated into your language. No, it's not translated into my language. Maybe the book by Aldous Huxley. Uh, great elements. It's the biography of 
Per Joseph, Father Joseph, a priest who was the right hand of Cardinal Richelieu. Uh, what intrigue has is that Father Joseph was, as a politician, extremely brutal, cruel manipulator. One can even say, with a comical exaggeration, that he is most responsible for Hitler. Because Father Joseph organized the pact in the Thirty Years' War between Catholic France and Protestant Sweden against the Austrian-German Empire. And the result of this was that Germany delayed its unification and, as we all know, this created the ground for Hitler, ultimately. And the result of this was that Germany delayed its unification and, as we all know, this created the ground for Hitler, ultimately. So what fascinated Hatsi was that this extremely brutal manipulator, every evening, after finishing his dirty job, wrote incredibly spiritual, top-level mystical meditations. At the level of Teresa of Avila and so on, you cannot find the weakness in them. They are authentic spiritual experiences. And this is very difficult to accept, how the same person can order, poisoning, torture, manipulate, and nonetheless, you cannot find this in his meditations. Huxley tried to put the blame on Christianity. So he, as you maybe know, turned towards Eastern spiritual experience. But I think things are the same there. Eastern spirituality. Let's take Eastern spirituality at its cleanest, most radical, Zen Buddhism. I really advise you to read a wonderful book written in English, Brian Victoria, the author, Zen at War. It demonstrates that the large majority of the millions of Japanese Zen Buddhists in 1930s and 40s totally supported Japanese imperialist war expansion. Maybe some of you know or remember Daisuke Seitaro Suzuki, the great popularizer of Zen. He was well known in hippie times, 1960 and so on. It is less known that in 1930s, for example, when Japanese army invaded China and did the well-known slaughter in Nanking, Suzuki wrote a text celebrating this attack as an act of love. Uh, he went even a step further. He claimed that for the majority of ordinary people who don't have time for years of meditation, a total military discipline is the easiest way to realize the goal of Zen, the overcoming of yourself. He, uh, Suzuki, wrote how when you are a soldier and an officer gives you an order, shoot, kill, and you do it automatically, if you really can do it, you attain Satori, which is the Zen Buddhist term for enlightenment. Uh, so, uh, but again, the horrible thing to admit is that if you read Suzuki, his spiritual 
description and experience of them is totally authentic. So uh, this brings us close to the notion of neighbor. A neighbor is not another human person simply with his inner life. Neighbor is that which is in the other more than the other himself. In the sense of some demonic dimension that you yourself are not aware of. Probably it happened to you. You have a good friend, someone you think you really know. And then in some difficult situation, this person does something. You see an obscene smile, an aggressive gesture, and you ask yourself, my God, is this the person that I knew? And usually even the person itself is not aware of this dimension. Uh, although I am an old-fashioned materialist, I have an incredibly great appreciation of Christian theology. Because I think you find this dimension in the very heart of Christianity. For example, the best Christian theologists got it that this is the moment on the cross when Jesus Christ says that Eli, Eli, Lama, uh, Father, why have you forsaken me? Uh, maybe some of you know it, there is a wonderful drawing, drawing, not full painting, of crucifixion by Michelangelo Buonarroti. It's known as uh, a portrait uh, Christ on the cross for Victor Vittoria Colonna. Here, uh, Michelangelo tried then to get the portrait back to destroy it. And it is, if you look at it closely, a terrible portrait. It shows Jesus Christ, his face in total despair. But the key is the right hand. It's, uh, like, fuck you to God. <laughs> this is the moment when Jesus Christ becomes truly a neighbor. And uh, again, really radical theologists are aware of it. For example, my favorite one, Gilbert Keith Chester. He wrote that at that moment of despair at the cross, Jesus becomes for a moment an atheist. And he claims in a very convincing way that this is what makes Christianity absolutely unique. In other religions, of course, there need people who don't believe in God, who are atheists. Only in Christianity, Chester says, God himself become an atheist, becomes an atheist for a moment. And I think that it is crucial to connect here Jesus Christ with the figure of, how to put it in Czech, Job. Uh, Read the book of Job. I think it's the first text of ideology critique, critique of ideology. What happens there? You know the story. Things turn really bad for Job, and what happens then? Uh, when things look bad, he loses his family, all the wealth, and so on. Then three friends come, three theologists, and each of them tries to convince Job that his suffering, his misfortunes, do have a deeper meaning. You know, the first one says, God is just, so... Even if you don't know what you did wrong, you must have done something wrong <coughs> because you suffered. So, 
the other two give different versions, but all of them give the same message. It's not meaningless, it has a deeper meaning. And why does John protest? His protest is not that he is innocent. He just insists that his misfortune doesn't have a deeper meaning. And the big surprise, really, if you don't believe it to me, when at the end of the book of Job, God enters the scene, he says, everything that God, sorry, that Job says is true, everything that the three theologists said is wrong. And in his terrifying speech, God then gives answers Job by giving even further examples of the meaninglessness of the universe that he created. For example, God says, but why do you think that the rain falls there on the, on the rocks where there is no earth to, to fertilize it? So God's basic answer is not, no, your suffering has a different meaning, but you are nothing special. The whole universe is crazy. <laughs> Literally, read And so I think that uh, we should read against this background the, the death of Christ on the cross. It's not that what dies on the cross, not a messenger from God. Which God? Do you know this disgusting theological metaphor? When we see something terrible, evil, it is as if when we look at the picture from too close and it appears to us a stain. But of course, when you step back and see the whole picture, you learn how what appears to you a stain contributes to the harmony of the picture. So the idea is what appears to us finite human mortals as evil is really just an element in a larger beautiful design by God. Uh, and I think that precisely this God is dead in Christianity. After the death of Christ, what comes? Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit is the spirit of the community of believers. It's almost, I would say, the spirit of a revolutionary party. <laughs> The message of Christ is not trust me, but I trust you. And even a deeply conservative theologist like the French poet Paul Claudel knew this. When he says uh, God is helpless without us. God needs our help. So uh, let me jump a little bit ahead so that I will somehow... <coughs> okay. Just two more steps I will try to do in the next half an hour. First, uh, we have now this, this terrifying dimension of the neighbor, the abyss of the other person. Uh, how do we, how can we survive the neighbor? Psychoanalysis has a precise answer, fantasy. Fantasy or phantasma is not simply we cannot get what we want and then we imagine it. Uh, it's not that. Fantasy, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the problem is, but how do I know what I want? Because we humans do not have like an animal instinct which tell us what do we want. Through fantasy we learn to desire. So, when we criticize, some people do, 
psychoanalysis because of pansexualism. This criticism totally misses the point. Uh, the, the point of psychoanalysis is not whatever you are doing, you really mean that. So that, I don't know, for example, in mathematics, when I solve uh, a problem like how much energy is released when two bodies hit each other, of course, I think about that. The problem of psychoanalysis is, but what do I think when I am doing that? The idea is that when I'm alone with my lover doing sex, it's not enough. I have to have a fantasy. Uh, a couple of years ago, they discovered Ludwig Wittgenstein's Tagebücher, Diaries from First World War. And he there reports on, very honestly, what he was thinking about when he was masturbating at the front. It was, he wrote, debating with French mathematical problems. <laughs> In Hollywood they went even further. Maybe you saw one of the worst films of all times, Warren Betty Reds, about that uh, John Reed who participated in the October Revolution. It's a film, Reds. Their October Revolution itself is the fantasy which enables the creation of the couple, Warren Betty, Diane Keaton. For example, when you fall in love with a woman or a man, fantasy is what makes you fall in love with that person. And there is another aspect which is crucial about fantasy. Uh, Fantasy is not so much the realization of your own desire, but of others' desire. Because according to psychoanalysis, the original enigma of a human being already as a child is what do others want from me? A small child experiences himself or herself as a in the middle of desires caught in others' desires. My father wants something from me, my father wants something, my mother wants something, brothers and so on. They all expect something from me, it's not clear to me what. And fantasy, we construct a fantasy to get an answer. And I think this goes also, if I simplify at the social level, at the social level. Is it not, is the anti-Semitic fantasy not precisely an answer of a perplexed subject like what's going on in society, what does society want from me? Yes, uh, uh, what I mean is that the anti-Semitic figure of the Jew is the same fantasy. Imagine an ordinary German in 1920s. Uh, an ordinary person was totally confused. He saw moral degradation, economic crisis, and so on. He didn't know what is going on. And Hitler provided the answer. The Jew is behind all of this. Uh, another crucial element of fantasy is that fantasy is not opposed to reality. Fantasy is what structures our reality. This is why I still think one should read The Capital of Marx. When Marx speaks about commodity fetishism. He does not talk about some illusions in our head. He talks about illusions that we practice in our social relations. To make maybe these things think more clear, I will give you a short report on a very interesting 
recent debate in American philosophy. It was a debate about what we know and what we don't know. It was a debate about what we know and what we don't know. Now comes the joke. The philosopher in question is, of course, Donald Rumsfeld. In March 2003, he shocked everybody by the following meditation at a press conference. So, so this is what Rumsfeld says. There are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. Like, I don't know. I am in... I know that I am in Prague, Prague, and I know that I know. Then Rumsfeld went on, but there are also, uh, sorry, there are known unknowns. There are things that we know we don't know. No, it's common. It's clear what he wanted to say. Like, I don't know. Uh, now, how many cars are now outside this building? I don't know. But I know that I don't know it. <laughs> or a more unpleasant example, which concerns us more. Uh, do I have a cancer or not? No? Uh, <laughs> you know that you don't know it, if you don't know it and so on. Okay. <laughs> then Rumsfeld went, went a little bit further and said, but there are also unknown unknowns. <laughs> there are things we don't know that we don't know. <laughs> the idea was they are so totally unknown, they are simply outside our horizon of knowledge. This is clear what his point was there. Maybe Saddam Hussein has something so secret that we even don't know that we don't know it. <laughs> but did you, and then he stopped here. And again, this is why Americans are losing Iraq. <laughs> I'm quite serious. Did you notice three elements? But if you make a matrix of permutation of, it should be four. We are, have known knowns, things we know that we know. We have unknown, known unknowns, things that we know that we don't know. And we have unknown Unknowns, things which are totally unknown. What is missing? The unknown knowns. Things we know, but we don't know that we know them. And this is fantastic. What is true in the United States? When they invaded Iraq, they were, their behavior was regulated, dominated by their ideological fantasies. They will receive us there, celebrating us, and so on and so on. It's precisely the unknown knowns, things that you know, but you do not even know that you know them. <laughs> Where, now, let's make a step further. Where do we encounter these unknown knowns, things that we know without knowing at its purest? In a very mysterious thing we call habits. Now, what are habits? Ah, this I think is the most interesting phenomenon. Why? Uh, first, let me emphasize the moment of, how should I call it? Uh, I will come later to that. Two points, if you allow me. First, habits, yes. Did you notice how whenever you are caught in a social event, member of some group, whatever. Of course, we all know interaction in a group from family to state is always regulated by rules. 
But if you look at it closely, things are always, and I claim for structurally necessary reasons, more complex. We never have simply rules, but we also have meta-rules, rules which tell us how are we to take explicit rules. And I know communism was terrible, but for me what was so fascinating about communist regime was how it manipulated this gap. On the one hand, we have rules which prohibit something, but between the lines, the message is, don't take it seriously. Like, I mean, in socialism there were many rules like this, or at least this was my experience in serving the army, doing the military service. Many things were there prohibited, but you were a total idiot if you followed the prohibition. No? Like, it was daily life in the army, you had to steal, you had to, you had to do it all. And I claim even the majority of sexual prohibitions are like this. Don't mess with girls means if you are men, do it. And so on and so on. Sexuality is all about this, how to solicit, solicit something through prohibiting it. But what we find at its purest in communist regimes, but we find it in different forms also elsewhere, is the opposite. It's uh, things that are explicitly given to us. We are allowed to do them on condition that, you know, we are given a choice on condition that we don't use it. And here things get truly, here things get truly mysterious. When you have, like, it's given to you the right to criticize and so on, on condition that you don't use this right. The catch is, of course, that uh, this second prohibition is itself prohibited. I read some transcripts from Politburo, Central Committee session in Stalin's era, and came a couple of times, a situation was almost like this, and came to a following conclusion. Let's make a wonderful mental experiment. We are Central Committee 37, Moscow. Okay, I am Stalin. And, uh, somebody, you stand up and criticize me. Okay. It's clear. Next day, people will ask who saw you the last time, and so on. <laughs> but let's imagine something else. Now I'm more serious. That then, I don't know, somebody else, you would stand up and tell him, but what are you doing? Don't you know that here we don't criticize Comrade Stalin? You would disappear even faster. <laughs> you, you see the point? It was prohibited to criticize Stalin, but this prohibition itself was prohibited. People had to act as if it's not prohibited. As if just Comrade Stalin is so great and so on, there is nothing to criticize. So this, I think, is what I like to call the domain of this social obscenity. It's not that you are not free, simply. You have to act as if you are free. The prohibition itself is prohibited. Uh, so this is what always fascinated me in a social field. This complex network of implicit rules which tell you how you are to deal with explicit rules. Which rules you really should violate or which rules you shouldn't take seriously. And a Russian friend of mine told me 
gave me a very simple explanation, I tend to believe it, of what went wrong in the Yeltsin era. In Soviet Union, classical, the pure one, it was clear what the rules are. Officially, freedom of the press, but you knew what you were allowed to do. You wanted your children to go to a best school. You knew whom to bribe. You know the rules. You know whom to bribe to get a better hospital. And the problem, key problem is that in Yeltsin years, people lost their orientation. For example, the law was, you should, of course, pay, stop, and pay when the policeman stops you and punishes you. But people didn't know, now what does this really mean? Can I ignore a policeman? Should I bribe him? How much? And so on. These implicit, unwritten rules collapsed. And they claim to me that this is one of the key reasons of this Putin stability. Not that anything great happened, but these unwritten rules stabilized themselves again. Now they know what is really prohibited or what is prohibited so that you should precisely violate it and so on and so on. Uh, this, I think, at this level we have to look for fantasies for ideology. Ideology at its purest for me are, and this always fascinated me, are so-called empty gestures. Like precisely things that you are offered, but you are offered them with the understanding that you have to reject them. Let me give you an example. There is a custom in my country, probably it's the same here. Let us say that we are the best friends and we compete for the same job. I lose, you win. In my country it's a custom that if we are friends you tell me, listen, I know that you really deserved it. So I step down and you will get it. But of course, I'm not supposed to say yes, perfect, no? I'm supposed to politely say no, thank you. But nonetheless, you see, the result is zero. But our friendship maybe will survive in this way. Or is not this also the logic with apologies? Uh, I had a problem with my theoretical enemy, personally good friend, maybe she's known here, the big, okay, she doesn't want to be called feminist, uh, Judith Butler. Once I used some dirty words with her and so on, okay, I was rude, I admit it. So I felt bad, then I called her and told her, listen, I'm really sorry and so on and so on. And she said, Slavoj, you know, I like you, I know you didn't mean it, it's okay, you don't owe me an apology. But you see the catch. Uh, she said, you don't owe me an apology. But she was able to say this only after I offered the apology. <laughs> she would be mad, and she would be fully justified being mad if I would not apologize. On the other hand, when she said, you really, I don't, you really don't owe me an apology, of course, in my evil mind, my first reaction was, okay, then I take it back. <laughs> no, but you see the paradox. At the level of literal meaning, what happened was total nonsense. Like, I did something, she said, it's not really necessary. But that was the function. It, it, precisely in this way, it had, to be, it had to be done. That's one aspect of the ideology. The other aspect, and on this I really more and more focus in my work, is 
these unwritten rules, insofar as they form what I call the, the obscene background of an institution, of a community, and so on. For example, I don't know if it was shown here, probably it was, it's some 10, 15 years old, a film with Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, and so on, uh, a, a few good men. <laughs> uh, interesting film, not very good, but it's the story about what in the army is called Code Red. This, you know, every military community has a whole network of obscene, implicit rules, how do you deal with those who are not one of us, how do you beat them, and so on. These rules are crucial, absolutely crucial, but you don't talk about them. They have to remain... And so I think this is the first step, always, when you analyze an ideology. Ask for its obverse set of these dark rules, which are not publicly admitted, and there you can really hit it. For example, to give you a comical example, I'm not boasting, I wasn't any great dissident, a little bit. <laughs> and uh, I remember in the late 70s when things started to open up a little bit in ex-Yugoslavia, I was a member of a committee of some student journal and there were elections. Elections, were, okay, they were not as bad in ex-Yugoslavia as in other communist countries, so the communists didn't get 99.9%, they got always around like 80, 80, 82, 83, <laughs> to make it a little bit more convincing. No? <laughs> okay, everybody knew it. So we had a problem. How to do it to make trouble, how should I put it, no? We even played with this radical suicidal idea, why don't we publish an issue claiming these elections are really not free, they are fake, but what would have been the meaning of this? The issue would have been simply immediately prohibited, and then we discovered people would also simply laugh at us. Haha, big news. Uh, as, if, <laughs> as if we don't know. But we found the solution. We said, if the communists claim that the elections are free, no, let's not attack them. Let's treat them as free. No, no, not in the sense of like posing our, our candidates, and candidates and so on. But we just said, let's report on them as if they are free. So we did nothing prohibited. We just published on the evening of elections an extraordinary issue of the journal with the big title, latest news, it looks that communists will remain in power, and so on. <laughs> Everybody is waiting for the result. were unbelievable. We were immediately called to the Central Committee, and then we said, but what did we do wrong? I mean, it is true. You stayed in power and made a very correct prediction, and, and it was incredible. Even now, I sympathize with him. This mid-level bureaucrat who received us, he wasn't able to formulate. He said, don't fuck with me, boys. <laughs> I mean. I said, but tell us, what do you mean? Don't mess with me. You know, you know that, you know, uh, this is what, again, this is what fascinates me. Now let's go to the opposite side. I'm not, like, in, if you read, for example, the ancient uh, United, uh, okay, ancient, United States in the 20s, I think that Ku Klux Klan functioned like something like that. 
Imagine a small racist city in the south of the United States, 1920s. You have official community, Christian values, blah, blah, blah. But then you have, in the night, if you are white, we gather together, we go out, we rape some black women, we... Uh, and so on. And everybody, okay, most of the people participated in this, but it was much more... This is where all memoirs agree. You didn't publicly admit it. But it was much more dangerous for you to publicly denounce this obscene underside than to denounce the official ideology. If you say, I don't want go to church, I hate official ideology, they would say, okay, you are eccentric, so what? If you say, Kukluxan is not right, probably you will be next to be, to be lynched. This was the core of identification. And to go into a little bit more problematic water, I am tempted to claim that uh, you are not so bad, I think. My country is pretty bad in this, Poland, Ireland, Austria, pedophilia in Catholic Church. I more and more think that this is their obscene underside. It's not simply priests are also humans like us, so of course there are those who like boys there. There is something in the very logic of institution which generates it. That, that's their obscene secret. So I think it should be it should be uh, it should be treated as such. Okay. Next point. Uh, all these unwritten rules form what uh, in psychoanalytic theory we call the big other. The big other is not God in the sense of the one who controls all, but much better it's to represent the big other as the agency of pure appearance. In the sense of, how should I put it, uh, the one for whom we have to pretend, act as if. What do I mean by this? Let me go a little bit again into Stalinism. Why? Because, uh, you know, what is so fascinating with Stalinism? I write so much about Stalinism that people already think that I am half Stalinist. But quite on the contrary, I think that the mystery is how neither the right nor the left, I think, does have a truly convincing theory of what was Stalinism. Fascism is much easier to explain. It's a conservative modernization, blah, blah, anti-enlightenment. But what went wrong in Stalinism? I mean, you cannot play this simple game, Stalin, evil guy, there. Of course he was, but that's not it. For example, I totally oppose this old thesis of Stalinism as a new class. What kind of new class when in 1936-37 the most dangerous place to be in Soviet Union was top nomenclatura? <laughs> you know that there in a year and a half, like 75% of the central committee, 80% uh, of the army headquarters and so on were liquidated. It was the point of madness. What was driving this madness? So what I want to draw your attention to is how Stalinism is usually dismissed as brutal regime. You know, no problem. We have to build that channel, canal in Volga or what. Okay, one million people die, so what? It was extremely brutal. But the mystery of Stalinism is how at the same level it much more depends on surface. The obsession of Stalinism is to maintain appearances at every level. Let me give you a fascinating example which I read recently. 
In 53, you know, after Stalin's death, Beria was soon arrested. But at that very point, so I read in a Soviet history book, I mean, book about, so, uh, 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 the first volume of the new edition of Great Soviet Encyclopedia appeared. <coughs> and, of course, it covered the letters A, B, so Beria. So, of course, there was two pages, one leaf, Beria. Now, the problem was that, as you know, in July, I don't know, when Beria was arrested, proclaimed a non-person, no? So, that's a problem for Soviet thinking, like, how to do it? Ah, they did found an ingenious solution. Every subscriber to the encyclopedia, and it was printed in two, three million copies, got a letter from the publisher which contained one freshly printed page, uh, and each subscriber was ordered to cut out the page with Beria and to put in a new page which reconstructed perfectly the continuity. Like it was the previous entry and then, and this is the genius, instead of Beria, they put Bering straight, you know, between the United States, I mean, Alaska and, uh, and Asia, and so that with some photos, when you did this, the continuity was perfect. Now, what is so mysterious here? It is whom they were trying to deceive. Just ask this simple question. For whom were they doing this? People knew it. They had to do it. This is, the, the, this is so mysterious about Stalinism. How, with all its brutality, it was terribly afraid, fanatically afraid of, how to put it, uh, of... Uh, Disturbing, disturbing the appearances. And uh, now, so that we will not just put all the blame on beloved comrade Stalin, and you can go to this logic to the end. I think there is here a big difference between Stalinism and Nazism. I think I developed this a little bit in my book on totalitarianism. I'm not praising Stalinism. In a way, it was even more horrible. But... Look, I think the proper way to do it is to start at the surface. If you look at old documentary films, you immediately notice a mysterious feature. When a fascist leader like Hitler gives a speech, at the end the people applaud, the leader just like, accepts the applause. Look at the Stalinist speeches, note the leader stands up and applauds himself. <laughs> this is, this si signals a totally different subjective position. It's not a leader, it's I am with you, servant of the people and so on. We are all part of the same enlightened reason, which also accounts for two other features. Stalinist trials. Like, you cannot imagine a similar trial in Nazi Germany. There was no trial in Nazi Germany where one would put together top figures, Jewish figures, and accuse them of Jewish plot. It's not part of their universe. You have Stalinist show trials. What is a crucial feature about them is that even if you are the lowest sheet, traitor, Bukharin, Trotskyist, whatever, you still participate in universal reason. That is to say, this is so... Why it's so terrifying to read the transcripts of, for example, I read recently your guy, Slansky trial. What's so horrible is that 
it starts somehow like, how did you become the enemy of the people? And Slansky, of course, I know it was all trained stage, but the point is precisely what, why did they need such staging. As a kind of objective observer, he starts with, already as a young uh, uh, boy, my parents, because of their bourgeois upbringing, educated me to hate the working class and blah, blah, blah. blah. The horror is that he is scum, shit, but at the same time he has the access to universal reason to pronounce it. Which is why another fascinating thing I read in a book, maybe it's translated, and Applebaum uh, Gulag. How, you know that in the worst years of Gulag, she claims, they collected on Stalin's birthday all the prisoners who had to sign a telegram to Stalin wishing him all the best and blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> now, just think about it. This is meaningless in fascism. What should they? Collect the Jews in Auschwitz to sign all the best for Hitler. The tragedy is that this feature makes Stalinism part of Enlightenment project. The idea is, even if you are the lowest uh, Trotsky sheep, whatever, you still have access to universal reason. Reason you can see the obvious truth. And again, this appearance has to be maintained. Okay, here we have the crazy, radical figure of this. But things are much more complex. Let me give you two other examples. One. Uh, do you know Hitchcock's masterpiece? My God, you should. Vertigo. Okay. You know there is a scene in the middle of the film when the girl, Madeleine, tries to kill herself. Okay, it's a fake. We don't know it yet. Then the hero, James Stewart, saves her, drives her home, puts her into his bed, and, of course, undresses her so that her clothes will dry up. And then we have a long so-called panic shot, camera moving, you see above a kitchen sink all her underwear drying up and then the camera moves to the door of the bedroom and so on. Now do something very simple, uh, put the image on freeze at that very moment when you see underwear and look what you see, it's not underwear, it's just abstract pieces of cloth. You know what was the reason then I inquired into it, I learned in a book. Uh, the Hayes Code of Hollywood censorship, which was still alive, said no, insisted that it shouldn't be really underwear, because if it were to be underwear, then this would be a proof that James Stewart saw her naked. This cannot be admitted because they are not married. Now what's so mystical here? The mystical thing is that we ordinary viewers we think that we see underwear. So again, who was the who was the censorship protecting? Obviously not us. It was again that innocent gaze of the big other. So again, we have we have a quite we have a quite uh, similar logic there. And I think that this idea that the big other shouldn't know is what is as it were the zero level of ideology. Probably you know the, uh, the standard joke, it's repeated all the time, we all know it. I'm almost embarrassed to say it about a madman who thinks he's a piece of grain, corn or whatever, and it's cured, but then comes running back and the psychiatrist asks him, but what's the problem? The guy says, I met a chicken and I was afraid the chicken will eat me. And the psychiatrist said, but you know that you are not a piece of 
seed of corn, but a human being. And, you know, okay. The guy says, I know it, but does the chicken know it? <laughs> now, I think this is quite a realistic joke. This is how it works. A whole country can fall apart from this. I think this was maybe the key reason that Yugoslavia fall apart. The chicken was Tito, the president. In what sense? It's now clear from some memoirs that the inner circle of nomenclatura knew it from the uh, uh, early mid-70s that the economic situation is catastrophic. They knew that harsh measures will have to be taken. But they, at the same time Tito was old dying, they wanted Tito to die happy. The chicken shouldn't have known it. So, literally, they, they accumulated debt in a couple of years, $15 billion, just to keep Tito happy. Yugoslavia still appeared prosperous, and so on, and so on. Or, to give a more dignified, not such a cynical uh, example, think, think, about, uh, think about something much more pathetic, how, for example, when parents fight, they have a small child, they fight, they're on the edge of divorce, but the usual game is, let's hide it from the child. Let's pretend in the eyes of the child that everything is okay. Things are here much more mysterious, I claim, because usually, of course, the child knows, but he pretends not to notice, you know. This is, I think, the true mystery of the symbolic system, how appearances matter, they function. Even if we all know, and even if we all know that we all know, still, uh, still appearance, appearances still uh, function. So, uh, uh, okay, let me now, do I have another, just 10 short minutes maybe, if you allow me, if people will not die, because I want, okay, very quickly, what I wanted to develop is now, what can we do? What am I preaching here? Should we respect appearances or should we, on the other hand, go for this direct obscenity or whatever? I think it depends. Both work. On the one hand, uh, appearances some, sometimes can be of help. Appearances in the sense of simple politeness, what you obey. For example, I was always fascinated by a beautiful story from apartheid South Africa. I read it somewhere, of how at big demonstrations, police was disturbing the black crowd. Among the blacks was a nice lady, nicely dressed, who was, of course, running away. A white policeman was with a, how do you call it, uh, with a stick, was, yeah, 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 was running after her. What, then something very comical happened. Uh, the lady lost one of her shoes. And the policeman, although a racist and so on, at that moment he automatically reacted with this automatic politeness. You see a lady losing her shoe, he picked the shoe here, lady. And then something miraculous happened. The lady looked at him, they looked at each other, and what should he do now? Put the, put the, put the shoe on and then we... No. He, he was totally embarrassed, he just turned around... Thank you, lady, and walked away. See, this is, uh, the, the lesson is not deep in his heart he was not a racist. Probably he was, but appearances, po politeness did, did its role. On the opposite hand, 
I think that, and this is my problem with political correctness and so on, I think, on the other hand, that, uh, how should I put it, to have a true contact with another as a neighbor, you cannot do it without obscenity. Obscenity is a mode, how do you signal to someone that it's not just this polite respect and so on, that you are truly a friend? It has to be a moment of obscenity. And here, if I may repeat an old story, which is my favorite, it really happened to me. How did I become truly a friend when I was serving in 75-76 Yugoslav army? I became a friend with an Albanian soldier. <coughs> they are very patriarchal, you shouldn't touch their father, mother, and so on. So we were just friends. But one morning, when he, the soldier, met me, instead of the usual good morning, he told me, uh, I fuck your mother. Now I knew this was an offer to real friendship. <laughs> no? He then looked at me questioningly. He wanted an appropriate answer. And you can believe me, I don't have problems with this. I immediately stepped back, go ahead after I finish with your sister. No, this is the <laughs> <laughs> And you know what was so interesting? Now comes the miracle. Uh, after this was the signal, now we are true friends. But this did not mean that in this boring, obscene way we were then all the time telling dirty jokes to each other. No. The only thing that changed is that every morning when we met, instead of uh, good morning, we even didn't pronounce the whole phrase. Not even as a joke. Just he told me, mother, I said sister. Just not even with a smile. This meant we are still friends. This was kind of a, a stand-in a guarantee. Now, of course, I'm well aware what here is wrong in this example. Two things are wrong. First, it's a very patriarchal one. It's basically a joke about men exchanging women, no? So, the least I can say for the feminists among you is that I would like to be in a society where two women meet and one say, fuck your husband, go ahead after I finish with your brother, whatever. It would be nice to be the other. The second thing is that we were equal. If, for example, if I were to be an officer, no, it wouldn't be good for the other guy to approach me and tell me, fuck your mother or what, no? So uh, this, okay, I don't understand, because what I could develop here is how, I think that this is why I find the figure of postmodern master, which they no longer want to be called masters, it's coordinator, no, I just coordinate and so on. The catch is that they are still masters, those who are the bosses. But they like to pretend that they are really one of us. So if you go to these ultra-modern American companies, the boss, you know, dresses ordinary, comes to you, tells you a dirty joke, let, let's take a drink and so on, but still remains the boss. This, I think, if anything, makes things worse. So, okay, really, now, to conclude, just with a con concluding comment, so, uh, do we really live in post-ideological era? People think we do, and the main reason is that, officially, at least, today, nobody takes ideology seriously. Who cares about it? It's abstract. It's, uh, uh, I, mean, I mean, today, the official ideology, let's be clear, at least in the West, is what? It's some kind of a generalized hedonism, no? It's not sacrifice yourself, do it 
have a good life, realize your true self, and so on. That's why I think Dalai Lama is so popular in the West. He perfectly works as the secret message of his spiritual enlightenment is a little bit of enlightenment will make you even a better businessman, more successful lover, and so on and so on. So that's clear. But so the idea is that the situation is cynical today. There are good reasons for it. My formative experience in ideology was one of the formative experiences. 91, 92, I remember in Germany, after reunification, in East Germany, there were some skinheads who were beating some Vietnam or Turkish people, and then they were interviewed, and it shocked me what I heard there. They started with the usual reasons, no, either ideological ones, uh, like, oh no, they are foreigners in our culture, primitive, or more brutal ones, like, they are stealing our jobs, or even more brutal ones, they get on my nerves, it makes me feel good to beat them. But interestingly enough, at the end, they all started to talk almost like that split in Stalinist victims. One of them said, looking into the camera, uh, asked why did he beat the Turkish workers or Vietnamese. You know, when I was young, I lacked the proper mother maternal love, I lacked paternal authority, and so on. They, they all of a sudden started to talk like social theorists. This should be cynicism at its purest. Like, it's no longer as Marx thought. They don't know that they are doing it, but they are doing it. They know what they are doing it, and they are doing it. So the idea is, in this case, criticism of ideology is no longer operative. People know you don't prevent things happening through enlightenment. What do I mean by this? You know that old Goebbels story, which is not even true about Goebbels, that he said, whenever I hear the word culture, I pick up my gun. You have two further variations of it. There is the variation from a Godard film, where a cinema producer says, whenever I hear the word culture, I pick my checkbook and so on. And then you have the pathetic leftist version. Whenever I hear guns, I reach for culture. The idea being interpretation can change things. Is this really over? I don't think so. Why? Because I claim that today the predominant, with this, if I may conclude now, I'm really at the end, uh, today ideology is no, no longer functions what I intended to call as the symptomal mode. It's no longer that you live a lie and then here and there through symptoms the repressed returns. If this type of ideology is a general lie where details betray it, I claim today's functioning of ideology is more and more a fetishist one. Fetish is not a moment of truth which disturbs the general lie. Fetish is a small lie which enables you to, to confront the truth. Because uh, what is effectively a fetish? Let me give you a simple, but not simple, it's tragic example which really happened to a friend of mine. His wife died of breast cancer. It was absolutely traumatic for him. And we, his friends, were all terribly shocked. Like, he was able to talk normally about it. We didn't have to pretend, no, uh, uh, let's not talk about it. He talked about the wife's last moment very coldly, and then we discovered 
what's going on. Whenever he was talking about his dead wife, he was playing with a small, how do you call it, hamster. That was his fetish. A kind of a standing for the wife. Through this fetish, he was able to accept rationally that the wife is dead, but to put it in traditional terms, block totally the emotional or existential weight of it. He just in a cold, impersonal way admitted it, but blocking all the symbolic impact of the fact. The proof of it is that when half a year later the hamster died, he immediately tried to kill himself and was hospitalized and so on and so on. And what I claim is that this is how ideology today functions more and more. Ideology is that small hamster that we all have. It can be, I don't know, oriental spirituality or whatever. You know, this is why I think that uh, nobody can really be a total perfect cynic. Every cynic has his hamster. No? <laughs> this private point where he pretends to be, uh, pretends to be, uh, pretends to be uh, authentic or whatever you want. There is a short story by my favorite detective writer, Patricia Highsmith, which is wonderful. Patricia Highsmith. It's called Button, about a guy who lives with a child who is totally mongoloid, his life is ruined. Then one night he goes out, desperate, on the streets of New York, finds a helpless homeless man, beats him to death, tears off his button, returns home, and from that time on, he was able to endure his life, take care of his son, because the button was the fetish, like, once I did strike back. And the button was there as a kind of a fetish. And that's, that's, the, that's the problem. So, the message is, I would say, rather optimistic here. Let's not be too desperate. I mean, theory can do its job. And if I may, just with a final joke, provoke you. In this sense, I am a Leninist. Which Leninist? Uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, we have a, a nice obscene joke from my youth. Maybe some of you, if you are old enough, also know it. We have all in our classes, when I was young, very young, still communist regime, the, this famous Lenin's advice to children, what to do, no? learn, learn, and learn. Okay, the joke goes, maybe you know it, I'm sorry. Uh, Mark, they asked Marx, Engels, and Lenin, what would you prefer to have, a wife or a mistress? Marx, as a conservative, says a wife. Engels, more hedonist, said a mistress. Lenin said, I want both. Everybody was shocked. My God, Lenin is supposed to be a skeptic. What does it mean? He's a secret hedonist. They asked him, but why? Lenin said, so that when you are with your, well, so that you can say to your wife that you are with the mistress, and you can say to the mistress that you are with your wife. <laughs> then they asked him, okay, but what do you do? And then Lenin said, you guessed it, you learn, learn. <laughs> <laughs> and this exactly is what we should do today, I claim. From all sides around, they try to blackmail us through charity. You know, what's the standard ideology today? I hate this. In America it's very popular. This rhetoric of emergency state, like, for example, my God, so often I heard this in the United States, something giving a talk where there is a sentence like, for every word that I read to you here, ten children died in Africa. Or, if you're a feminist, for every sentence that I read her, one woman was raped on our street, and so on. I think this is a deeply reactionary attitude. The message is, 
do something, don't think. The message is this false post ideological one. Don't even try to understand, just do, let's do something. No, I think that what we need more than ever today is to withdraw and to think. We should really, like Lenin in the joke, reject uh, wife and mistress. That is to say, if wife stands for official career, if mistress stands for false transgression, which is very fashionable today. Like this was my problem, for example, in England, when, this is the example of the mistress logic, when there were a couple of years ago big demonstrations against, uh, against uh, Iraq war. Millions on the street, the greatest demonstrations, so everybody was satisfied, and that was problematic for me. The leftists were satisfied. You see, we brought millions to the street, we showed those in power, what is it? The mystery is that those in the government, Blair and so on, were no less satisfied. Because on the one hand, they could say, you see what a democratic country we are, on the other hand, they knew that they can simply ignore it. They didn't care for it. The best answer was given here by Bush. When he visited London at that point, and a journalist asked him, what do you think about big demonstrations against you? He said, I, I am so glad about those demonstrations, because he said, you see, that's why we are going to Iraq. So that something like this can happen also in Iraq. So everybody was satisfied. I, I think that a lot of leftism today is this kind of empty protest. You protest, not only although you are secretly aware that it will have no real effect, but you even know it, and that's why you protest. You protest it, you know, like this, okay, I did it, I keep my conscience clear, so now I can go on with my life like normal. It's almost that a protest can also function as a kind of a superstitious act. You really protest so that Nothing will really change. And I claim this is also generally the problem with this charity and so on. I think that the, the meanest, lowest ideology is this ideology of charity, especially if it's personalized, you know, like some of my friends are doing it, it's horrible. Like you have a you know, you have an African poor black guy. You send him twenty dollars a day. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, too much. A month. You get once a year a picture with a letter or, uh, from him, and it makes you feel so good. But what makes you feel so good? I claim that he is there and you are here. How's that <laughs> I think that the charity, deep in its heart, charity is a kind of a you really pay so that they remain there. How's that So that I mean, it's, uh, so. Uh, uh, don't trust this rhetoric while we live here, people are out there starving and so on. Bill Gates talk like, talks like this today. I mean, we intellectual at least should absolutely reject, if I may say, put it in brutal Leninist terms, this is the bourgeois sentimentality, to fall into the trap of this blackmail. How do you dare just study your abstract theory when people are starving there? No, our theory is needed more than ever today. I claim we are today living in a unique era where even everyday problems, we cannot solve them without reflection. For example, look at uh, biogenetic problems. How far should we go in manipulating our genes? 
Are we aware that here we are confronting a situation where we have to make an ethical decision, but the traditional ethics cannot help us, which is why no wonder that incredible alliances are made, like Habermas, the great enlightenment figure with Ratzinger, Benedict, whatever you call him, the Pope. And th they both have the same advice, which is for me a catastrophe. Don't do it, don't mess too much with it. This doesn't solve the problem. This is, basically, it means let's not play with it, let's ignore it, let's keep a distance. It doesn't work. So what I'm trying to tell you is that in such an era of humanity, like ours today, when because of ecological crisis. Ecological crisis is the same problem. I deeply distrust the new age attitude, which is technology, science, objectivizes nature, it's responsible, which is why we should, uh, we should return to our immediate life world experience. Originally, we are part of a situation breathing with nature and so on. I don't think that's a solution. I think that's the problem. We need more alienation. Why? Let's imagine a very ordinary scene. You listen to a talk against, uh, about ecology. The mystery is, again, fetishism, the split. We know we are in deep shit. It may be the end. But strangely, nobody is really ready to do anything. Why not? I claim, you know this famous fetishist logic in French, Je sais bien, mais comment. I know very well, but I don't believe it. I claim that's our basic attitude towards ecology. We know, but somehow, after hearing the talk about ecology, you go out, you see the sky, the sun, you cannot really accept that all this will collapse. Why? Precisely because what those Lebensfeld phenomenologists praise so much as our embeddedness in a Lebensfeld life world. I think that, if anything, we need more alienation in the sense of the lesson of ecology for me is ecological crisis is not that we should drop this reference to nature. We need ecology without nature, to cut on story short. If by nature we understand nature as this mother earth or some kind of a harmonious balanced system which then we humans with our hubris we disturbed it and now we have to re-establish the balance the 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 horror horrible thing much more difficult to accept is that there is no nature in this sense if you want to prove think about oil uh, do you can we even imagine what a totally un thinkable ecological catastrophe must have happened sometime in the past of the earth to produce oil. I mean, it must be unthinkable. And this is nature. If you read good Darwinists today, you can learn a lot of them, like Stephen Jay Gould and so on. Their lesson is, no, nature is not a struggle where the best survives. Nature is crazy. Nature is not harmonious balance. Nature is totally chaotic. Somebody is a loser, then there is an earthquake, the rules change, the loser is the winner, everything is improvisation. So you see, the, this is the true difficulty to think about ecological crisis, which would be maybe even a better example than tolerance of how ideology works. Ideology is not dreaming, ideology is about very real problems. Tolerance, exploitation or ecological catastrophe, what is problematic is how 
the very way the problem is perceived is part of the problem. It mystifies it. And for all this, we need theory more than ever. We shouldn't feel not in the minimum guilty about being intellectuals. I think it's a matter of survival even for us to remain intellectuals. Without this, we are effectively, we are effectively lost. So let's not lose our nerves. Let's go on and we will see what will happen. Thank you very much. <laughs>